This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff with you this Friday afternoon with some sun starting to poke through, looking like a fine weekend ahead for much of South Australia. Coming up, will there be cherries for Christmas, though, with all this cold weather? I'll have more on that soon. And the concept of virtual fencing has been around for some time now, but is it poised to become more mainstream? Animal welfare is, is front of mind to our organisation and, and to all farmers. SADA believes that the research is done. There is no adverse effect to the animal. So, you know, you can see no reason why it can't go ahead. I'll have more on that soon. But first, you might remember when the new nationwide Australian fire danger rating system started in September. But hands up if you know what that means for the harvest code of practice. I'm not sure many hands would have gone up because a very quick survey of farmers suggested that most of you have no idea what it means for things like ceasing harvest in hot weather. Grain Producers SA has been calling for the rollout of the new code to be delayed until after harvest due to the short notice for grain producers. Emergency Services Minister Joe Sokarch met with Country Fire Service and Grain Producers SA to discuss this issue yesterday. Good afternoon, Minister. Hi, Cassie. Good to be with you. So what were the main topics discussed yesterday? So the main takeout for me was just the absolute dedication from grain producers in the industry to do the right thing. And when I say do the right thing, they're really to be commended about being really dedicated to ensuring that we have safe practices and that we do minimise and mitigate against um, really significant risk when it comes to the improper um, harvesting on these days when we shouldn't be. So I really want to commend grain producers for, for that and, and, I, and I'm really pleased to be able to say that arising from that meeting and the extensive engagement that we've had, I think is a clearer path forward for everybody. Um, we're committing to continue to engage on this and we've got a, a really, I think in my view, a really common sense approach and that is we've been able to marry up what is colloquially, if we put it, the old system and the new system, that is the the old system that relies on the um, GFDI and the new system, which is the FBI. But really, it's giving a practical consideration to the concerns that the grain producers have, but it's also committing ourselves as a government to continue working with them and commending them on their commitment to safe harvesting. What does this mean, though, for someone who's harvesting on a hot day? What system do they use? How will it work for them? Yeah, so so in in short, there are, there are, um, in this transitional year, there are there are two approaches that, that that I really commend people to take. And the first of which is, if we talk about the old system, the the GF GFDI, and that is that the thirty five index is still appropriate. So if people up until now. Um, know very well and very properly that they should be ceasing harvest at 35, and that's the a correct approach to take. If they're using the new system, that is the system arrived at from the updated, nationally updated Australian Fire Danger Rating, which is the FBI, it's the Fire Behaviour Index, then they can jump onto the CFS website and use the Aurora calculator. And that, that then is a, um, an FBI of 40. But what I can say and what was really good to discuss yesterday was that 35 under the old system and 40 under the new system is basically the same. 
So what we want to do is commit ourselves to supporting the safe practices of farmers, um, supporting the safe um, um, leadership that the um, grain producers have been leading with, and in this transitional year is really give people the confidence that if they're continuing to maintain and execute the safe practices that they've been known to do, that they're in safe hands. Um, but I also want to take the opportunity, Cassie, if I can, is just to also remind people that there are really strict and really um, severe penalties for doing the wrong thing. Whilst we're being really supportive of farmers in this transitional year, um, I think the government and grain producers really do stand together on this to say that if you're doing the wrong thing, you can expect there to be a very strict penalty. And that's because um, doing the wrong thing can lead to really um, catastrophic fires and, and the loss, potential loss of property or life. And what we want to do through this whole process is minimise the risk to, to property and to community. I do have a point here from Paul from Balaclava saying with the Harvest Code, there's a clear issue with the formula behind the new system converting from, uh, was that two metre wind measurements to 10 metre wind measurements? So if there are some concerns there, is this going to be looked at? Yeah, look, this is a, um, a, a constantly evolving, well, sorry, I shouldn't say evolving, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dynamic event in the sense that the CFS the Country Fire Service is committed to continuing to work with producers and continuing to work with farmers. Um, the reason that this transitional year is important is because that we want to uh, continue to support farmers who have been you know, committing themselves to doing the right thing and giving them the confidence that under the new system, it is to a very large degree business as usual. How will it be monitored, though? There was a very clear system in the past. Now you've got two systems working. How will people know when uh, they are operating at the, the right uh, level, given that a lot of this does work on, you could almost say, peer pressure? Everyone sort of sends around a bit of a message sometimes when it becomes clear it's the time to, to stop harvesting. Yeah, so look, the, the, the really positive thing to take out of um, my engagement with the primary producers, uh, with, with grain producers, is that, as you put it, um, Peer pressure is is really something that that, though, that them as as industry leaders as peak bodies are going to be pushing pretty hard. It's this collective responsibility that that all producers have to their communities and to their colleagues and to their industry to do the right thing. And whether that is using the um, GFDI index or whether it's using the FBI, they will be arriving at the same juncture. They will be arriving at the same threshold. And whether they are using the new system with the AFDRS and the Aurora calculator on the CFS website, or if they're furnishing themselves with the best information and arriving at that GFDI index, they are still going to be doing the right thing. They're still going to be doing the right thing by their community and their and their industry at large. A lot of farmers use services like MesaNet to work out their danger index. Their, their fire danger index. Will the government be putting money into boosting MesaNet's capacity to meet the uh, the new method, the uh, grass fire behaviour index? Yeah. So the the um, grain producers have been raising that with me, and I know with other ministers as as well. Um, one thing that we the, we've undertaken to do is to continue to lobby the national, the Commonwealth Bureau of Meteorology to. Um, share their information with private companies like MesaNet. Of course, um, that is a private operation. It's a, it's a business and it's not a government-owned business. But we think that the sharing information can be better and we'll continue to advocate for that. Um, but in the meantime, um, that's why we are really recommending that, that, that producers 
jump onto the CFS website. There are some fact sheets. They're really, really easy, short, digestible fact sheets. And also there's the Aurora calculator. So they can use that um, for the AFDRS system, the nationally consistent system. Um, and that will give them the fire behaviour index rating. Well, it sounds like there's uh, been a bit of a compromise reached between uh, farmers and the Country Fire Service and yourself. So I'll uh, chat with grain growers shortly about what they think about this. But thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Cassie. Emergency Services Minister Joe Sokarch speaking there. Grain Producers SA Chairman Adrian McCabe has been following this. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Do you think this is a workable solution to this problem that arose with the, the changes to the Australian Fire Danger Rating System? I think it's the only solution um, as headers are already rolling and going at a weekend of 30 degrees with harvesters starting. So there was, there was, this was the only solution really. Um, so, yeah, so for farmers out there, you can use, you can use the uh, GFDI at the, at the 35 number and you can get that off the Ebnisonet, you can get that off AgBite systems. And, and of course, we're, we're used to measuring that as, and we can measure that at two metres as um, I think you've got a, you've had a message in from Paul. Um, is, is dead right. So currently we can measure that at two metres. We've got our handheld devices as well. So, yeah, it's certainly something we're very comfortable with going into this harvest. How many farmers do you think were aware of the changes? Uh, I know there's a few because we've had many of calls to our office and, and I know Shane and Andrew in our office here have been working very hard, both with CFS and with growers, to to, to work through the issues with, with um, finding their way through the Aurora site and... and um, and, you know, a lot of the links are sort of popping up this morning, even so. So, um, yeah, you know, there's, there's still some issues with, with the rollout. Um, there's no SA in the drop-down boxes. I think there's a photo of porn on it for quite some time. So, yeah, we, we've been working with growers to, to help them um, get through the system and hopefully growers over, over harvest time get a chance to compare the two side by side. This is a transition year. Do you see that this is a chance for farmers to become familiar, but then next year they will have to be on board with the new grass fire behaviour index? Oh, that's certainly sound, sounding like it, isn't it? Um, but you know, let, let, let's get through this. Let's get through this harvest. I think for growers is really important, and, and it's going to give us a really good time from the header seat to, to do them side by side and work out whether you know the, the, the ten meter forty number is relevant to the thirty five. Um, 35 GFDI number at two metres and then because I, I know in the past when we started talking the difference between uh, measuring at two and ten metres functionally we can't measure at two metres so if we have any breakdown of any sort of um, 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 in, uh, ability to to look up sites then we need to do, then we need to hand measure and if we can, and there's no way we can do it at 10 meters so functionally it's going to have to be done at two meters so yeah there's, there's a couple of things that still need working through but the ministers certainly listened to us and and I had a good discussion with him yesterday um, and yeah very receptive to the to the 35 GFDI to keep everyone safe this year for someone who perhaps isn't as familiar with the, the exactly the way it works, it does sound like it's been lifted by five degrees. Now, that, that sounds like there's, there's a lot more threshold there for something going wrong. Why is it that, that 40 degrees would be equatable to 35 degrees in the old system? Uh, it's not degrees. It's, it's, a, it's a number um, taken. Well, so the MacArthur Index has worked out basically back in the day with uh, humidity, temperature, uh, wind speed, um, probably a couple of other factors: grass, um, grass greenness, or, or, or moisture in the in the grass as well. Um, so that was how it was worked, and it's a it's a it's a behaviour. It's a grass uh, fire behaviour index, not not a degrees. So the forty we, we, we I 
guests like you, we thought the number was going to be up until um, late August. We thought the number was going to still come out at 35. It's now come out at 40. I'm not quite sure why that number's changed, but it has, um, which obviously will um, hopefully not provide uh, too much um, indecision out in out in grower land. But certainly, yeah, the, the numbers changed. Apparently, the calculation is of the grass fire curing index and behaviour index is very similar to the old work that MacArthur did back in the day where the numbers have really changed apparently is more around the, the forestry area um, um, has, has made bigger differences but yeah somehow we thought it was going to be the same it's now 40 um, so yeah we're you know we're trusting really what the, what the CFS tell us that 35 equals 40 uh, we're going to put that to the test and as it does 35 at 2 metres equal 40 at 10 mm-hmm. um, and there are services like Mesonet and AgBite and others around the place that farmers do use to, to calibrate these things. Do you want yeah. to see more funding put into boosting them? There is the Aurora service that is on the, the Country Fire Service website, I believe, but uh, it's not used by a lot of people. These other ones are often used more often. So do you see them needing to adjust as well? Uh, we, we raised that yesterday. I mean, the last thing we need is one more app. <laughs> the minister was more, more was very aware of that too. Um, you know, in our lives, we just get more and more apps and more and more things we need to be looking at. Certainly, the MesoNet and AgBite is something we look at all the time, um, and we're used to using it. Yes, we'd, if if the FBI is to is to come into practice, we would we would absolutely advocate that they should be on the MesoNet and AgBite. Um, currently, they don't exist on either. Um, I think AgBite are trying to get it up um, to run a comparison for this year, um, but certainly the MesoNet um, is unable to do it without any funding, as I understand, to put it on their site. Um, so that is, is a massive issue for farmers. It's just one more site that we need to need to be monitoring over harbour so we've got plenty of other things to do. Well, it sounds like you've reached a workable compromise, so thanks so much for joining me today. Good. Thanks, Cassie. Adrian McCabe, Chairman of Grain Producers SA, just uh, weighing in on these changes that were rolled out this spring when it came to the uh, Australian Fire Danger Rating System and what it means for harvest. So you can use either system by the sounds of things, the grain fire, the, sorry, the Grassland Fire Danger Index or the new Grassland Fire Behaviour Index when you are working out whether you need to stop harvest uh, if it's getting a bit hot and windy around the place. So a bit of a, a negotiated outcome there by the sounds of things. It's 19 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Cattle producers are pushing the state government to allow the use of virtual fencing, claiming it is both practical and cost effective. Virtual fencing is already legal in some other states, but in South Australia it's not yet permitted. Karen Hunt has taken a look at this. In a virtual fencing scenario, cows wear a GPS-enabled collar which sends an audio signal if the animal goes too close to a virtual boundary drawn by the producer using an app. If the animal ignores that signal and moves closer to the virtual fence line, it receives a small electric pulse, similar to touching an electric fence. Advocates say animals learn to move away from the electronic boundary when the audio signal is triggered. Virtual fencing has been on the wish list of Livestock SA for some time and now dairy farmers have added their voice. South Australian Dairy Farmers Association President John Hunt. Back in 2012 um, when the regulations were set up around animal welfare regarding to uh, electric shock to animals, we wanted to do the research and uh, how we can streamline the process so it's not such an issue. We had the opportunity to 
um, or allowed to do the research into virtual fencing. The challenge we've got now is, is getting the government to change the regulations around it. Animal welfare is, is front in mind to our organisation and, and to all farmers. SADA believes that the research is done. There is no adverse effect to the animal. So, you know, you can see no reason why it can't go ahead. We would like to see it regulations change so it could happen. What would be the advantages for dairy farmers? The main advantage is just not so much fixed fencing. You can shift the animals, you know, into different size grids. Uh, I mean, we have to contain our animals anyway, so we currently use electric fences and seven wire fences. This is just a way that you can shift the animals a lot easier. If there happens to be a disaster like a fire or anything like that, you can drop fences with a push of a button. The fence itself, a virtual fence, can just disappear so the cows uh, will just walk through it. So it would assist in a lot of management areas. Given that many farmers already have fencing in place, do you think that it might be something that they will also put in the too hard pile? Oh, no, I don't think so, because a lot of farmers have got areas that they do want to ring fence. Um, there might be some areas they want to protect, drains, um, ponds, if it's there, and they think they can, uh, they'll can, they utilise it, they will. Does SADA have plans in place, if this virtual fencing can be approved by the government, to actually train farmers in how to use it? That'll be up to the service providers. Like, there's regulations around it, what you can, what you can't do, so the service providers will provide that training. Our main role is to is to see if we can get the uh, legislation changed. We're in good communication with the ministers, so they can see the research. They just keep shuffling it back down the pile. So we've just got to keep on to them, which is uh, frustrating, and make them see that the data has been done, the research has been done, to show that there's no adverse effect to the animal. But while SADA wants immediate legislation change... Minister for Primary Industries Claire Scriven says she will instead await results of another research project. The situation at the moment is that we're in the middle of a trial, a $1 million virtual fencing project um, at the Strawn Research Centre. And that trial is looking at a number of things. It's looking at issues around animal well-being. It's looking at productivity and profitability for producers. And in particular, looking at any long-term impacts that might happen for animals in terms of the virtual fencing. So we'll be looking forward to seeing the outcomes of that research. I think it's really important. I think producers themselves are keen to make sure that they've got the best information in terms of the welfare of their animals. And although quite a lot of producers have expressed interest in virtual fencing, they're also very keen to make sure that there are no adverse effects for their animals as well. So it's an important piece of research uh, and we'll be keen to see what the outcomes of that are. Is there an end date in sight for that research? Uh, So it's due to end in August next year. So it started in April this year. So it's quite an in-depth piece of work so that we do have that information about any longer-term impacts because uh, the advice that I have is that uh, until now, most of the research has been done uh, in sort of a more constrained kind of environments. So it's really been, you know, restricted in terms of its duration and the sample size and so on. What we want and what these studies are doing now is making sure that we've got a system that's able to be assessed under more sort of commercially applicable conditions. So we've got to know how it actually will work in the real world. And that's, uh, to the extent possible in a trial, that's what this research is doing. Producers have told me that virtual fencing is almost the same as electric fencing, and yet there has been no long-term studies, as far as I'm aware, into electric fencing. Why this amount of research on virtual fencing? 
Well, I guess because virtual fencing is a relatively new approach, uh, it's something that hasn't been widely adopted for producers here in Australia. Excuse me, Minister, but it's already legal in Queensland, Tasmania and Western Australia. I I don't see how you can say it's not widely used. Those have been relatively recent in the last couple of years, as I understand. I'm not quite sure about New South Wales, but I know Western Australia was only earlier this year. So it certainly doesn't have that longevity of use in the same way that uh, other types such as electric fencing does. So it's currently prohibited under the Animal Welfare Act, which is under Department of Environment and Water. But obviously, once we do have the outcomes of these trials and this research, then we'll be able to look at what the next steps might be able to be. Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, ending that report from Karen Hunt. Went across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, and uh, it seems the results are finally in. South Australia in October was very wet with cool days and warm nights in the southeast, which I'm sure many of you probably have uh, guessed that, probably confirms what you already think. Uh, Jenny Horvat, uh, is that basically the way the numbers have shaped up? Yeah, that's right. So for October across the state, we ranged from average to highest on record for our rainfall across most of South Australia. So overall, it was the state's third wettest October on record. So we did see large areas of the state's east, which have had their wettest October on record. So that includes parts of the Murraylands, Riverland, Mid-North and Flinders District, as well as parts of the northeast pastoral districts. And some of those areas that have had over 100 millimetres of rain for the month. So yeah, pretty wet through there and um, and a lot of parts across the agricultural area had at least double their October monthly average rainfall. So that's looking at those averages of 30-year averages sort of um, back into the sort of 60s to 90s. So it was pretty wet. We had some thunderstorms moving across and we had some gusty, gusty um gusty lows coming through so that came through on multiple times through the the month contributing to that um to that rainfall and um just having a look at some of those um extremes that we did see that strongest wind gusts what we had at the end of the month there on the 30th at Unadada airport with a severe thunderstorm was 139 kilometers per hour it was the result of all the rain lots of clouds so it meant that our daytime temperatures will below to very much below average across large areas of SA. So uh, as a whole for SA, we've also had the lowest mean maximum temperature in October since about 2010. Um, On the flip side, though, we did have those warmer nights, that cloud just keeping... um, keeping those temperatures up on the minimum temperatures. So, um, yeah, as we all probably do feel it, it's been a bit cool and a bit cold and a bit wet, but at least we've got a little bit of a reprieve coming up for the remainder of today and into the weekend. So we are looking at some more stable conditions. Um, got our high-pressure system today near Kangaroo Island. We'll see that system moving off to the east and becoming established in the Tasman Sea over the weekend. It'll become relatively stationary in the Tasman Sea and that will direct us in that drier, warmer, northerly airstream. So we are looking at those temperatures on the rise and we are looking at pretty much a dry weekend for the state and we are looking at those temperatures picking up to um, to hot about the, the north and by early next week, generally hot temperatures throughout by Monday. But we do have another one 
one of these um, troughs and lows coming across from the west. May sneak into the very far west late on Sunday, but it's really Monday about western districts that we'll see showers returning, possible gusty thunderstorms as well. And we'll see that system moving more broadly across the west and into central parts later on Tuesday. Those gusty thunderstorms again coming across with that system. More broadly to our eastern districts on the Wednesday there before moving away on Thursday. A little bit of uncertainty still with that one. Potentially maybe not looking quite as, as wet as the ones that we've seen, but we will be watching this space. So we have got that dry weekend coming up, but then on Monday and Tuesday, some of the rainfall that we are looking at out to the west, generally 2 to 10 millimetres about the northwest pastoral and west coast districts. Um, only sort of 1 to 2 about Air Peninsula and eastern parts of the northeast pastoral district early in the week. However, with those thunderstorms, heavier falls are possible, maybe 10 to 30 millimetres there, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Jenny Horvat, with that wrap of what October was, as well as a bit of a look at the fine weather that we have coming this weekend. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 11 and 14 degrees. Day, getting warmer, mid to high 20s. The lower western's partly cloudy, and there is actually a slight chance of a shower in the far east, but not much chance anywhere else. Overnight getting down to 10, but the daytime temperatures reaching the mid-20s. Sounds like it's quite a nice time of year to be in the far west of New South Wales. We're approaching 12.30. More to come in the next half hour of the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. With this weather warming up a little bit, I think it might be just about time to start talking summer fruit. Everything's a little bit behind schedule with this cool weather, but uh, there could be some fruit not too far away. In the Riverland especially, it does get quite warm there, of course, and so things can really motor along once the temperature picks up. And all the fruit grown in the Riverland, of course, will be well and truly finished uh, by early December. So the Riverland fruit will definitely all be gone by Christmas. So are you looking forward to summer fruit? What are you most anticipating? Perhaps the cherries, the ever-popular cherries. Strawberries are a little late this year as well due to this cold weather. Let me know what you are looking forward to this summer. Text me 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. I'll also update you on the apples in the Adelaide Hills because there were some housestorms around this week on that uh, wintry day on Tuesday and it has done a bit of damage to crops in the Adelaide Hills. So I'll have more on that soon. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the state government says it's deeply concerned about allegations in the latest annual report into the treatment of young people at the Kulana Tapa Youth Justice Centre. The training centre visitor Shona Reid has highlighted how limited access to health care and minimal time outdoors has affected the well-being of children at the detention facility. The report also noted staff shortages due to illness were a significant contributing factor. Three new ambulance crews will be deployed to Adelaide's inner south and outer northern suburbs to help with the city's ongoing ramping problem. The state government has announced 32 paramedics will be based in Marion and Edwardstown by the end of this year, and a further 12 will serve as caller. And the state government says it's looking to fast-track plans to decrease the amount of single-use plastic in the state. The proposed bans would phase out single-use plates and bowls used for takeaway food and instead encourage reusable containers. Legislation will be drafted to 
introduce three stages to the new bans, with the first to be implemented by September next year. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, uh, you might have heard the long-awaited National Carp Control Plan dropped yesterday, outlining how biological control methods could be used to control carp numbers in the River Murray system as well as other rivers. And the potential for the release, well, the potential release of the carp virus could affect many communities and businesses along the basin. Bill Nemai is the Tourism Development Manager for Murray River Lakes and Coorong. He told Matt Stevens he hoped the report would provide more solutions after all this time. I was a bit bemused, to be quite honest, because it, it certainly has a lot of information on what has previously been discussed. And, you know, obviously, you know, considerations like how are you going to get rid of the dead fish? Should they be fished out? Um, is there other ways of actually removing fish before you put the virus? And really, after I read it all, I thought, well, this is like a, a statement of, oh, this is what we've known and we've got to do more research. So it really doesn't solve anything. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting... You know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not giving an opinion one way or another, but it, it seems like we're a long way off before there's any re- resolution in respect to what the best outcome could be with this. Mm, yeah, I mean, one of the worries for the tourism sector, I'm guessing, would be water quality if the virus was eventually released from either the, the, bi- the biomass of the, the carp and, and this, the, the fact the virus is there as well. Yeah, very true. And, you know, um, from an aesthetic point of view, from a river quality point of view, and just think of, you know all dead fish floating down uh, with strong high current down to the Coorong. It, it has a lot of ramifications that really can't be probably measured, and, and that's the challenge of all this, because until you do it, there's still a lot of you know risk aversion in respect to you know putting qualification on, we think if we did this, we think if we did that, but there's still a lot of um, nervousness, I think, with it, because it's clear that more research needs to be done, Matt. Like I mentioned, this has been you know, in the works since 2016 and was, a, was supposed to be released in, in 2018, and now they're looking for even more time. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where something does happen? It's a good question. I, I sort of jokingly said to someone last night, Tourism Awards, you know, will it happen in my lifetime? I, I don't know. But, you know, Matt, there's always different angles, and one thing that evolved since these discussions, and I remember them in 2016, mm. Um, I remember talking to a lot of houseboat owners then, back then. Anyway, but interestingly enough, for example, you look at a company down in Meningi called Kurong Wildside Tours and Kurong Wild, um, Wild Seafood. They've done a lot of proactive work in respect to harvesting carp and um, in association uh, with Julie Bates from Regional Development Australia, Murraylands and Riverlands, getting chefs from Sydney and um, Duncan from Africola and Adelaide getting carp on the menu. Because carp is actually a delicacy in Europe and Asia. In it is, parts. yeah. yeah. And so another angle that probably isn't really uh, covered in the report is the fishing and harvesting of carp, as now carp has been starting to be recognised that actually is a fish that can be put on menus and eaten. Um, if you prepare it correctly, um, and there's certain you know things that you do yeah. um, when you're harvesting it, yeah, like putting it in fresh water and you know looking at the bloodline and the way it's actually, you know, killed makes a difference with the shop and things like that. Or so the fishermen tell me. So there's a lot of variables in that, but that's something new. And maybe that could be explored more as part of the future research of the on, this ongoing report, because maybe the harvesting and fishing uh, is a more of a viable option now than it used to be. 
Tourism Development Manager of Murray River Lakes and Kurong, Bill Nimi, speaking with Matt Stevens. Now, the plan doesn't explicitly endorse releasing the herpes virus to control the population, but it does outline steps that would be required before going ahead. Someone who knows plenty about the plan and the long journey to get to this point is David Littleproud, the leader of the National Party and former Federal Agriculture Minister. He's speaking here with Riverland Breakfast presenter Matt Stevens about his frustrations on the plan's release. Well, look, I'm disappointed they're asking for more time, more science. I, I gave them more time, more science, more money. Uh, and, in fact, the last brief I had uh, about this uh, when I issued the allowance for more time and more money was that they'd hoped that uh, it would get probably around, eradicated up to around 90%, 95%. I see now it's down to around 40 or 60%. So I think it's important that not only do we look at this virus, but we look at what are the other mechanisms that we're going to, to engage to try to eradicate carp, and that's what I think is missing. And there's a, I haven't had the time to read through the full report. I've seen the broad outline, and something I'll be going through. And, and in fact, that we'll be asking some very serious questions at Senate Estimates to try and get underneath the bonnet of this to see what the the value for the dollar spent is and will be into the future. We welcome the fact that government's putting more money into this, but when you're only looking to eradicate 40 to 60 percent, what other mechanisms are we going to use to complement? Uh, those those measures, this disease, this virus, uh, to, to try and eradicate. In our part of the world, in the Riverland, there is a, a rather large carp biomass, particularly in uh, one of our lakes in Lake Bonnie. So, and, and one of the big issues uh, that has been talked about is the actual removal once, if a virus is put in there. Do you think the plan covered up on that enough? Oh, look, I think that the, the physical removal of the carp is one that in a practical sense we can achieve. I, I think we just need to make sure that we've got comfort with the science that we can, we can unleash uh, this virus out into the, into the population of carp. Uh, I think uh, you can do that in a sensible way. Uh, and, and the science, in fact, that's now being contested is about making sure it doesn't have uh, any unintended consequence on native species. So I think to the, to the essence of us being able to be able to, to get rid of the, the biomass uh, that, that is left after this virus, I think there are practical measures we can achieve with that. And, and, and that's not just governments, that's communities working together. And, and I think that's the coordinating level of government and community groups making sure we can achieve that. But if you don't have something that's going to eradicate to a, to a larger extent... Um, you're not going to have to pick as much up. So this is why I think you know the fact that we're now asking for more science, uh, more time, and now looking that uh, this would probably eradicate 40 to 60 percent means that we've also going to have to start thinking about other means of of how we might be able to take down this carp even further. So what is the next step in your opinion? Well, obviously the government's made a determination to give more time and more money. Now we respect that if it's. If they, if they uh, want to continue down this path, and we want to support making sure we work to, together constructively to eradicate carp, uh, I think they need to make sure uh, that there is some milestones put around the science to make sure that this isn't uh, just another talk fest and, and that we simply get to no juncture at all at the end of this. Uh, I think there needs to be some firm leadership by the minister here to make sure that he holds them to account. And if it doesn't look like they're going to get any results, well, then we need to, to rethink. We really need to recast and, and, and look for alternative options. But I think they should also be looking at those complementary measures now as well. And I think that's important to engage with the with particularly the fishing industry to make sure, and aquaculture, to make sure that we're engaging not just scientific experts, but those that are on the ground every day that, that can see practical solutions 
uh, to complement the science that we may be able to devise. Leader of the National Party, David Littleproud, speaking with Matt Stevens. The ABC contacted Federal Water and Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek for an interview. In a statement from the Agriculture Department, it says that the delivery of the report will assist governments in deciding whether to continue to the next stage. It is only the first step of several important stages needed to adequately consider the release of a biological control agent. The Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry will facilitate this process, which will involve advice, briefing and consultation to facilitate consideration by the relevant committees. And any potential future release of carp virus cannot occur without further research, agreement from all relevant jurisdictions, legislative approval and extensive stakeholder consultation and this process is still expected to take several years so uh, still quite a long way uh, to go with that it's coming up to 19 minutes to one you're listening to cassie huff on abc radio south australia and broken hill that's less than two months away you're planning your festive feast, you might want to order your cherries sooner rather than later. Uh, they're probably not the only thing you're trying to order as well. I'd love to know what you're looking forward to this summer. Text me 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Craig at Mount Compass just wants it all. He wants a South Australian fruit salad with vanilla ice cream. That sounds delightful, Craig. Do keep your thoughts coming through because uh, uh, it is a bit up in the air what will be delivered and when, given the uh, concern Negative La Nina events have wreaked havoc on uh, the sweet fruit, uh, the sweet red fruit of the cherries, with a decrease in production last year and supplies likely to be tight again this year. Rubber Bank Associate Analyst Pia Piggott says the recent wet weather has put a real dampener on the latest outlook for Australian cherries. Cherry trees are a very difficult crop to produce and to harvest and unseasonal rain has really damaging effects on the quality of the cherries. So last year we saw that there was lots of November rain in these major growing regions and that led to things like cherry splitting and low volumes. We saw a decrease in total production of around 15% but a decrease in exports of around 20%. So when there's the unseasonal rain, we have less of the quality cherries that we're able to export And so that definitely has an effect on farmers and their margins. In the context of inflation on fruit and vegetable prices, do you have any idea at this stage um, what Australian shoppers could be paying for cherries this year um, at, at the supermarket or their local fruit grocer? So while we don't exactly have a forecast for the retail price, we do expect that because the supply is tight, producers' input costs have been rising. Things like our fertilisers and labour costs have been rising um, and additional costs because of the rain. We might see elevated prices in the retail space. Even if there are some elevated prices in the retail space, are you aware at this stage whether that will help farmers get some return on investment with those rising input costs or is it again likely to be quite tight? or operating at a loss? Yeah, it's still likely to be quite tight because of the additional costs of the unseasonal rain. So depending, you know, it might be quite different for particular growers. Some growers say in Tasmania there's a higher percentage of uh, protected cropping and that may protect growers um, because their volume and their quality is not as much affected by unseasonal rains. However, if you aren't using protected cropping, then you might see further losses. Tony Hannaford grows cherries in the Riverland and Adelaide Hills. 
He says despite the wet weather, he's having a better season than last year. Well, last year we got hit by hail and that wasn't very nice for us and for many other people. But this year, the rain's actually helped us. But it's actually been ideal cherry-growing weather in Barmara and in the Riverland generally. You know, normally it's too hot and too windy, but this year being cooler during the day, it's certainly allowed a better fruit set. And we've got actually got quite a good crop up there. But because it's been so cold, it is running about 10 to 14 days later than what we'd normally like to see. Does that affect uh, much of the markets that you sell into and what's the demand looking like? Domestically, of course, demand is very, very strong because even though we're infected here in South Australia and in the Riverland, the Victorians, uh, the eastern states have been affected more than us. So there's a, a very real shortage of cherries early in the cherry growing season. Chilean cherries are already arriving in, by air into quite a few uh, international markets in Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, Thailand, wherever. And so we're getting quite a bit of inquiry saying you know, where are our cherries and of course our cherries are not, uh, not ready yet. Not only will there be a delay with Australian grown cherries this year um, coming into Christmas, but also um, supply could be quite tight with um, yeah, a lot of growers affected by that, that third La Nina. Um, yeah, are you expecting this to affect um, the prices that you might get? It's a bit of a tricky question because you don't want to say the prices are going to be higher. I mean, last year the prices were extremely good before Christmas because last year was also a a late year and the bulk of the cherries grown in the Adelaide Hills and grown through the eastern states matured after Christmas when the market is quite very weak. Demand drops off and we certainly didn't want to see an increase in supply as demand drops off post-Christmas. So this year... It looks like being even later, but that can change if we get some heat and things start to move along. In the Riverland especially, it does get quite warm there, of course, and so things can really motor along once the temperature picks up. And all the fruit grown in the Riverland, of course, will be well and truly finished uh, by early December. So the Riverland fruit will definitely all be gone by Christmas. Organic cherry grower Peter Brooks says he's had a rough start to the season in Barmara. Well, it would have started this week if it hadn't been for the rain, but it split the first lot, so they're all uh, gone. But luckily we didn't have too many early ones, so we just netted some today, this morning, and they're looking beautiful. Probably be ready uh, two weeks' time, week, two weeks' time, depending on the weather, if it warms up a bit. But yeah, with the hot weather next week, it might uh, bring them on a bit. Sorry to hear that, yeah, you had the, the first lot of cherries split. Um, Peter, how, how many did you lose there? Oh, not many. No, we don't have many early ones anymore. They're all gone. So, but some of those boys that uh, hit the market early, because that's where the money is, the big money, um, they could have been in a bit of trouble, I reckon. But I know a lot of ours split, but only on uh, a couple of rows have got the early ones. So they're probably hundreds, oh, no, not even 100 trees, probably 60 trees or something. But mind you, there's a good crop on them. But, you know, the next, you know, the next second pick will be our first pick. So uh, huge crop this year. Well, we lost them all last year to hail. Didn't, get, didn't pick a cherry. And even if we did, we weren't allowed to pick them anyway. We didn't lose them because of the fruit fly. We were in the zone. So that uh, we lost every one. Didn't pick a cherry last year. But we're hoping that the fruit fly stays away. Except I just heard that the fruit fly like cool, moist weather. So it uh, could be interesting. As long as the hail stays away, we'll be fine. Two, three weeks, I reckon. And uh, people can come out and pick whatever they like. 
Farmer Organic Cherry Grower, Peter Brook, ending that story by Eliza Burlash. Texting from John saying it's not just cherries, but strawberries have been hit big time with floods interstate and hail last week in the hills. They're not the only ones. Cherries have been affected, but uh, Adelaide Hills apple growers have also been affected by hail in uh, the hills as well. Uh, the growers are also disappointed that United States apples could be allowed into Australia. The Federal Department of Agriculture has recommended that apple imports from the Pacific North region of the USA be allowed subject to strict biosecurity protocols. However, those biosecurity import conditions have not yet been published. We spoke about this a couple of days ago, but Ashley Green's family has been producing apples in the Lenswood region for about five generations, and he is concerned about the risks. I think it's crazy. We're not talking about one pest. There are 20 pests of concern from um, insects, grubs, bacteria, uh, which is the fire blights, all the way to fungus. You know, these are pests that we don't have in Australia, that they have in the US. On top of that, um, you know, we're living in a world with a changing climate and um, we are trying to reduce our carbon footprints but we allow apples to come in from the USA. It's crazy. That's halfway around the world. We grow enough apples in Australia. We actually grow more than enough apples in Australia. Last year there were thousands and thousands of tonnes of apples were tipped out because they couldn't be sold. Gosh, really? And with a lot of food that's imported into the country, usually it's to satisfy a gap in the market where Australia doesn't produce for that that product, but apples can be stored very well. So, is there actually ever a gap in the market that a, a counter seasonal country like America would be able to to market to? No, there's never a gap. In Australia, we um, you know, all winter you would have been buying any stone fruit, grapes, cherries. It's all come from the USA. Oranges, mangoes from Mexico. Um, you know, there is a lot of produce imported, and one would argue, you know, why. Again, you know, if we are serious about climate change, um, why do we put all these unnecessary food miles? New Zealand and China have both previously applied to send apples to Australia and been granted access. How has that affected you? Well, as, as I said, it's additional supply. So last year, as I mentioned, there was thousands of tonnes of locally grown apples tipped out. So any box of New Zealand apples or Chinese apples that got here uh, and were sold meant that Australian growers wasted their Australian produce. I understand, though, that they really have not been particularly successful in actually getting much market share. Do you know much about how well people have taken to the imported apples? Look, because our market is so tightly supplied and, you know, our... Our wholesale prices are, are quite low. Um, there hasn't been a, a, a huge gap. I mean, our industry's been supported quite well by the, you know, the supermarkets and, and, and the shopkeepers that, that um, buy our fruit. They, they don't tend to stock um, those apples uh, unless uh, there is a small gap. For instance, um, you know, before we were growing large quantities of jazz apples, um, when the Australian crop finished, there'd be New Zealand jazz would come across. I don't know. Um, I don't really know the extent of, of how much is actually sold. I, I don't see it in the shops, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening in the eastern states.
And looking more locally, we know that South Australia experienced a wintry blast this last week, which brought hail to parts of South Australia. I understand several areas in the Adelaide Hills experienced some hail. I understand you were affected by some hailstorms. How bad's the damage? It's a little bit early to tell because our fruit market is so cosmetically driven. Our whole consignment of apples can be um, knocked out and returned because of a mark or two on some fruit. So, you know, it's a little bit, it's just a little bit early for us to tell just what the damage is going to be. It hasn't been severe like previous hailstorms, but there is damage in the orchard and the apples that are damaged are not going to be any good. So we undertake a thinning process now where um, in a few weeks' time when the fruit's a bit bigger, we will... um, have people go through and pick the bad fruit off the trees to um, get the crop uh, back to a level where it's uh, going to be profitable to pick. With all this cool weather, a lot of crops are behind their usual ripening. Uh, Grain crops are are waiting to be harvested, but I, I understand that the apples are also a little behind. Is that going to be a benefit to people who have been affected by hail, that that the fruit is a little less mature than it normally would be at this time of year? Uh, yeah, um, the apples are a lot smaller than they would be normally and a smaller target won't get hit as much as a big target. Also, a smaller apple, um, because it's just so small, that it will move when it's hit and the damage will be less severe. Uh, a bigger apple um, will take the full brunt of a hailstorm, hailstone and not there won't be any give. But you should be able to thin for the worst of it by the sounds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we're hoping. Um, but uh, as I said, the apples are so small, the damage is a little hard to see at the moment. But a very small mark now will grow with the apple. So, what is um, you know a mark that might be a millimetre across at harvest uh, could be five or ten millimetres. My father used to sort of bank on one hailstorm every seven years. Um, and if you had a period of time where you didn't get one, you could have two in a row, which uh, I remember when I was at LAD, we had two hailstorms in a row, and that was quite a big event um, and quite devastating to the industry, but we're sitting at five now out of six, and it's just unheard of. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, changes to the weather this year has been a particularly remarkable one. That was Ashley Green from Lenswood. His family's been producing apples in the Lenswood region for about five generations. I've had a text in from Deb from Warradale asking, are fruit stores always marked with country of origin? Is it a requirement so customers are aware? I understand that uh, the food labelling laws do require most foods offered for retail sale to have information on where the food is grown, produced or made. Um, I dare say that some smaller places probably don't have to, but uh, by the looks of things, really just about everything has to say or be or make people aware at some point that uh, the food, where the food has come from. So, uh, And those, those country of origin claims have to be true and accurate as far as the person knows. So uh, it's yes, to a large extent. Deb, the answer is yes, the fruit stores do need to be marked with country of origin. Also, uh, she's gone on to say that it's so sad that people tend to buy 
buy it with their eyes and want perfect fruit. Uh, it is sad. It's a human nature. I guess we're conditioned to go for the what we consider the best, but it, it does make it t- tough for people who are producing perfectly good products that are not as aesthetically pleasing. You might remember also earlier this week uh, we heard from farmers offended when a letter was sent from them by the supermarket giant Coles that suggested that producers turn their minds to cutting costs from their supply side rather than rely on a price rise from the supermarket because earlier this year Coles announced that it would lock in prices on about 1,100 items until at least the end of January and this caused a bit of outrage among suppliers. Coles has provided a written response to the story we ran earlier in the week. It says that we are absolutely committed to working with our suppliers to navigate the challenges associated with inflation to ensure that we are helping Australians with cost of living pressures while being fair and mindful of the impacts facing our suppliers. Over the past few months, the number of requests we've received for price rises has risen significantly and we have dedicated additional resources to ensure that we're dealing with those requests in a fair and timely manner in accordance with the grocery code. When it comes to natural disasters, our fresh produce teams are committed to supporting our suppliers on ground. So that was the response from Coles to that story that uh, we ran earlier that they were asking, well, they were denying farmers who had requested price rises on the grounds uh, that they were suggesting perhaps they should cut costs from their supply uh, side rather than rely on a price increase. Finally today, we've been following what's been happening in Menindee because there is a lot of water heading to that town and in the far west town of Menindee, there continues to be a prepare to evacuate notice for those in and around the low-lying areas. And today there's currently a drop-in session at the Menindee Community Hall where Water New South Wales, the SES, Police Council and Family community services are there to meet with locals. Yusuf Saudi is in Menindee and caught up with Gavin Arnold, who is the division commander for the Far West Command Area for the SES. So we're holding a drop-in session here for the community of Menindee, so the residents get a chance to come and ask the questions and seek advice from all the people that uh, they might need help from. Why do you think this is important for Menindee residents at the moment as SES? Oh, it's important for us as an agency and for all agencies so that they're well prepared for the future. They can have their questions answered and you know have an opportunity to raise concerns. And I understand that you have already knocked on some doors last week preparing people, telling people to prepare to evacuate. Have you informed any more people about that yet? No, since uh, last weekend, while we are keeping an eye on all the predictions from the Bureau of Meteorology, we haven't identified any further residents that need to prepare to evacuate, but obviously we'll keep the community informed as they happen, if they happen. And how many volunteers are on the ground at the moment for, from SES uh, for Menindee? Uh, so currently on the Menindee um, area, we've got six volunteers on the ground. Uh, we've got another nine coming in on Tuesday, uh, Monday, sorry. Um, so we are making sure that the community residents are well looked after. And so far, how have people responded to this drop-in session? Oh, it's only just started, but so far we're seeing some positivity um, it, and we're getting plenty of public turning up. So I think it's a good thing. What have people told you so far? Uh, At this stage, they're just preparing themselves for the water that's coming downstream. Um, They're happy to see some sunshine out here, which is really good to see. It's giving a break in the weather, letting some roads dry out. Gavin Arnold, who is the Division Commander for the Far West Command of the SES, speaking with Yusuf Saudi. That's it from me, but Caroline Winter has lots more on your local radio. Good afternoon. Hi, Cass. What's coming up? Well, have you ever given something away to charity and then realised, actually, I want that back? Um, Yeah, possibly. I mean, generally it takes... 
a lot for me to get to that point. So I probably have thought it through. Okay, so Cass, you're um, I'm a hoarder. <laughs> so we spoke to a lady earlier this week whose teddy bear was given away and she wants to get it back. We're going to find out if that's possible. She might have to buy it back. She might have to buy it back if it's not already gone. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Tracking it down might be a, an issue too. Well, that is an issue for you. Keep listening to ABC Local Radio with Caroline Winter this afternoon. It's coming up to one o'clock. There are so many ways to keep informed. State heritage listing does provide some important protection. It doesn't prevent any development on the parkland. Leading news and current affairs. ABC Radio South Australia and... Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.